Welcome to The Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Anglin, and this is episode 22 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Kevin Hines. Kevin is a brain health advocate, global speaker, and filmmaker. In the year 2000, Kevin attempted to take his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Many factors contributed to his miraculous survival, including a sea lion which kept him afloat until the Coast Guard arrived. Kevin now travels the world, sharing his story of hope, healing, and recovery, while teaching people of all ages the art of wellness and the ability to survive pain with true resilience. Visit the Carlina Show website at carlina.net to learn more about Kevin and link to the show notes. From there, you can find past episodes, connect on social media, and sign up for the mailing list. Thank you, Stephen Lorca, for video editing and production. And now I bring you Kevin Hines. So I guess I first met you in Chattanooga in September. And Yes. <laughs> And, um, well, you've been so many places since that you probably, uh, don't remember, but, um, I remember you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and actually, so I started following you on Instagram after, after September and you had posted a picture with Steve Exine, who's the founder of Ride for 22. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I think he was at a conference in, in Florida, but, um, but anyway, I, I reached out to him, and he was on the show a couple episodes back, and we talked about you a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. So um, I think it was, a, it was a, uh, a conference for military families who had lost a loved one from, from suicide. So, um, yes. Yeah. I do, I do, I do remember. <laughs> okay. So, um, so as I've been kind of following you on Instagram, I see that you talk to a lot of different groups. I see you talking to high schoolers, veterans, healthcare professionals. That's the, the conference I was at for healthcare professionals. Um, and, and then also talking on, on TV and podcasts and all with a lot of people just really connecting with you. And so I guess my first question is, why do you think, why does your story resonate with so many people? I think it has to do with the multi multifaceted storylines within the story. Okay. I think that I think that you know when I when I go and present, I talk about being uh, born into poverty to parents on drugs. I talk about being in the foster care system to being adopted. Just those three alone, people relate to certain people. Mm -hmm. And then I then I get into how I developed. Uh, a mental illness in my teens, which then a whole a whole new group of people start to relate to. And then I talk about how I, I, I attempted to take my life in such a dramatic way that was so dangerous and survived that fall. And people people understand the language of surviving pain and surviving struggle and coming out a, a, a different person. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of those storylines in this one story, they attach to someone because the ultimate the ultimate connection is, is really relatability to living with pain, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual pain. And, and I, I feel like I've been so lucky in my recovery that 
I had so many people that had my back and that cared for me and that made sure I was safe every single time I went through what I, the things I went through, including most recently uh, my struggles with severe mania um, that I haven't talked about really to anyone. Uh, that, that happened recently because I, I'm just to be frank with you, I went off medication again without telling anybody uh, because I was tired of the physical pain the meds were causing me um, as I have developed a skin disease because of my meds. Um, but, but that aside, people respect, understand, and connect with surviving pain. And I think that's why the story is so, has such a, um, a vast difference, different kinds of audiences. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. There's so many different, there's so many different kinds of people that relate to this story because it relates to them. And I think when you tell someone your story in public, they tell you theirs. You know, when you express your pain, people often around the world in my in my experience want to share theirs sometimes for the first time ever um and and uh uh one of the things that's been going on with me is that because of uh, uh, a certain medication that i'm not on anymore i developed a very serious uh, skin disease that caused me secondary burns from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head i, I cleared those out with with uh a natural cream and, and a lot of hard work and a, a change in my diet because uh, my pills were affecting my liver and my kidneys, which were affecting, which were being affected by the foods I was eating. And I'm telling you this because I want people out there to understand that uh, a big part of the reason I had such a, a hard time this year with mania was because they had to rip me off of all of my meds in, in basically 24 hours because they were going to kill me. And and I was going, to, I, I was on the tipping point of something called Stevens Johnson syndrome. And when you get Stevens Johnson syndrome, you have a one percent chance of survival if you contract the disease. And it's caused by medication. Now, I'm, I'm not putting down medication. I take it today with 100% accuracy every day at the same time. But I had to find the right meds that weren't going to hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're talking to a guy who's been on meds for 20 years. So for 20 years of, of taking the medication religiously, it affected my, my organs and I had to make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people out there in the field who are worried about me talking about getting off your meds. And that's not, that's not my narrative. Mm-hmm. I want people to find what works for them. And the best thing that works for them Mm -hmm. today, living with severe bipolar disorder, I take medication every day with 100% accuracy at the same time every day. I eat foods that are non-inflammatory that don't swell my brain. I educate myself as to every publication that comes out on bipolar disorder so I know how to fight it. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing these multifaceted things every day that I like to try to teach people. And I call it the art of wellness. I have these 10 steps that I utilize every day to stay stable, to be able to talk to you. Right. To be able to have this conversation. If I was unwell mentally, if you if you had caught me three or five weeks ago in the midst of this med change, you wouldn't have wanted to have this conversation with me because I would have been so unwell. Right. And so this, this is something I'm going through on a daily basis. And I think that's the other thing to answer your question. That's the other thing that, that people relate to the most mm-hmm. is that it is an ongoing struggle that I have by no means overcome my situation. I'm in the middle of trying to live in recovery daily. Right. And I think that that's really relatable, that 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 idea that you're, you're going through something right now. And so am I. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how is is telling your star, story part of your wellness program? Um, what kind of what benefit is there for people for you to tell your story? To tell my story and to be able to express my my pain and my recovery from it um, is, is, is probably by far the most therapeutic thing I could be doing. Mm-hmm. because I get in front of an audience 
luckily that, that, that has been built over time, I get in front of an audience that is willing to hear my truth. Not just willing, but excited about it. And, 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 and being able to tell your truth on such a regular basis in such an open way, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an open book. You ask me a question, I'm going to answer it directly. Okay. Uh, you know, and honest, honestly, whatever that question is. Um, and I think people know that about me. They know that, that I'm not going to hand them a bunch of, you know, false solutions for their problems. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the guy that talks about how much hard work has to be put in to being mentally well when you are not. And if you're not putting in the hard work, you're not going to see results. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that people appreciate that honesty and appreciate that level of reality. Right. Right. Um, since you you do have you're in the unique position where you've talked to so many different groups, I'm wondering if we could if we could break it down a little bit, and I could ask you about some of those groups in particular, and you could shed some insight into what you've learned and how the people in their community could wrap around them and and what they can do to help prevent suicide. Um, Absolutely. Okay, um, and I have uh, just um, written down here. I have. Um, hi, I, I'll go ahead and list what I'm interested in knowing yeah. from you. And then d- yeah. depending on how much time we have, we can go through each one. But I want to talk about um, middle schoolers and high schoolers. That's one, one group that you talk to. Um, the veteran community, two. Three would be the recovery community and healthcare providers. Okay. And then four would be the media, how they can be proactive in, in, in helping to reduce and prevent suicide, and then also elected officials in the government. <laughs> so depending on how much time we have. Yeah, I think, I think if we spend a few minutes on each of them, we can, we can cover them all. Okay. Okay. Let's go ahead and start with high schoolers and middle schoolers. High school, yeah. What insight do you have? What should people do to help this, this particular group? So for middle schoolers and high schoolers, one of the things I, I love that is going on right now through our legislative efforts, through legislative efforts in general for mental health, is the uh, man- mandatory education and mental health and suicide prevention to fourth graders and above across New York State. Um, what they are doing is absolutely revolutionary. It is profound and it is pertinent. It's crucial. I've always recommended that we give mental health education. I've, I've been a, 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 a proponent of this cause for a long time in my public travels and speaking. That third grade and above should be getting mental health and suicide prevention education so that when they come across this kind of struggle or the struggle of one of their friends in school, they know who to turn to, what to say, and where to go. And, and people say to me, oh, Kevin, that's too young. Uh, you know, they, don't, they don't need to know about that much pain and mental health. No, you're wrong. If these kids are old enough to comprehend what pain is, then they can have it. If these kids are old enough to comprehend what mental health means, then they need to know how to achieve good mental health, how to battle bad mental health. Um, and so the fact that New York State is, is uh, in large part due to the First Lady of New York, uh, I think Charlene McRae, uh, the, 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 the fact that they are engaging in education for minors for mental health right now at third and fourth grade levels is phenomenal. It is a beautiful success in the broken mental health system that, is, that lies in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that for our middle school and high school kids, we need to recognize that at that young age, they can experience pain. And if they experience that kind of mental brain, mind, behavioral pain, what exactly can we do to help them get to safety? One of the things we must begin to do in middle school and high school, in my opinion, and some people are not going to like this, is stop the 
stop bullying model. Stop, we're not going to stop bullying. There are people in this country and around the world that completely lack empathy. Scientifically speaking, they lack empathy for others. So we're not going to stop bullying. What we need to do is teach our children from middle school to high school ages how to be resilient in the face of bullying. What we need to teach them is how to find the resolve to not let words online destroy them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crisis text line has stated that that cyberbullying is 60% more dangerous than physical bullying, meaning that it is more lethal than physical bullying uh, with the result of cyberbullying. And so if we do not actively teach our children resolve in the face of pain, they cannot cope with it. And if they not, cannot cope with it, they attempt to take their lives. Okay. So we need to recognize that stopping bullying is a facade. It's not realistic. It's not going to happen. We're not going to stop the people who have no empathy from, from, from doing what they're doing to harm others. What we must do is teach the children who are being bullied how to always stand tall in the face of that struggle. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm speaking from personal experience. In middle school and high school, I was bullied to no end. I was uh, – I was called little red N-word every day because I was part black. My ears were pulled aside, and I was told to whistle, little N-word whistle. Um, I was punched in the gut while someone held me from behind. That was the physical act of bullying. The mental uh, stress these kids put me under was unbearable. But my mother would send with me to school in in my lunch pail every day in, in grade school from kindergarten on up. She would send me positive affirmations in my lunch bag. That no matter what anybody said about me that day, I could open that lunch bag and hear something positive that I knew was coming from someone who loved me. Mm-hmm. And that taught me resolve to, to fight the bullies. And so if we can teach our children how to defeat the pains that are outside of them, they can always survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for middle and, middle and high schoolers, we need to help teach them how to cope with pain in order for them to always survive it and to never die by their hands. Right, right. Okay, okay. Um, and then is there anything that 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 parents could do anything um as far as like social media perhaps is that is that a cause of you you know i think i think that um i think parents in today's social media era we need to recognize that our children can look at anything they want online in seconds anything that's terrifying to me that must be more terrifying for parents of, of children they love so before you give them a device before they're of that age Educate them as to the dangers of it so they know what to steer away from. And if their friends or confidants are, are looking at those things or engaging in that cyberbullying activity, having your children be so educated in that that they stay away from it is key. Mm-hmm. And helping your parents recognize that you hold the power of that device. You bought the device. They're underage. Put restrictions on what they can look at on it mm-hmm. before you even hand it to them. But we're not doing that. We're just handing them these devices that can go anywhere, any time of the day at any website and see anything. That's unacceptable. Yeah. yeah. That, that's not that's not appropriate mm-hmm. for these children whose brains have not fully developed yet. So parents, when you give your child a device when they're 13, 14, 15, and they want that cell phone so bad, put the restrictions on it before you, hand, you put it in their hands. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's what they're there for. They're there for a reason. Yeah. Let's use them. And let's let's educate our kids and be honest and open with our kids about the dangers of online social media. Mm-hmm. Now, social media can be great for me in the work I do in suicide prevention. It gets out to hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of people. The, the video messages we put out that have a great effect. But not everybody is on 
social media to, to do good. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of people on social media to do harm. And our words have the power to do one of two things, damage and destroy or help and heal. That goes for bullies and that goes for people on social media. Right. If, we, if we can recognize that our words have, have power, they have uh, conviction, and if they're hurting people and that's their purpose – they're going to do damage, but we can teach our children to use their words online in a way that only helps and heals. Okay. Okay. Um, let's move on to the veteran community um, and how anybody, you know, either family members or veterans affairs or um, what what can they do to, to prevent suicide? So veteran suicides, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've talked for years about 22 deaths a day, 22 suicides a day in the military. Um, uh, the reality is it's much higher than that. Those are the ones that are being reported properly. Um, so so I, I think one of the biggest things we're missing in the military is actionable steps to reduce mental pain. You know, if you go on any military base, if you go on every American military base, there are a few things that are consistent and, and around the world. There's a Taco Bell there's a Starbucks, there's a McDonald's, um, and there's a Subway. On almost every military base around the world, those things exist. Here's the problem with those things. Those are all inflammatory foods that are caused by uh, the, the, uh, our, our consumption of those foods is dangerous to the brain. They're processed foods that come from plastic wrappings or boxes that are not from Mother Earth and they're not from the, 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 the animals we, we turn into food in this country. Um, they're, they're dangerous. If you look at Max Lugavere's book, Genius Foods, you can see what foods are inflammatory and what foods are not. And inflammatory foods absolutely swell the brain, cause depression, cause paranoia, cause psychosis, and cause mental stress and, and, and anxieties. Um, and if we are eating foods that benefit our brain health, we're going to be less suicidal. But across every military base around the world, those things exist, and I don't see them going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But until and when they go away and a mandate for military healthy food is is put in place for military bases around the world, until we get them better food, that that food is literally directly related to their mental state. Mm -hmm. And that goes for all of us around the world. Um, If you're you're familiar with inflammation in food, or if you're not, it's inflammatory foods, things like McDonald's, Starbucks, you know, those kinds of foods that are filled with uh, processed um, chemicals, really chemicals that are poisoning our brain Um, until, and and let me be clear. I eat these things. I just do them in very, very slight moderation. Mm -hmm. I I have four cups of coffee a month as opposed to one every day. I I don't eat dairy at all because it, it flares up my paranoia because it swells my brain. I know exactly what these foods do from dairy to gluten to caffeine and copious amounts uh, to refined sugars. Um, if I eliminate those things from my diet, not only is my skin disease healthier, uh, but my mental state is more clear. Um, I haven't had severe paranoia for six months because I don't eat dairy anymore. And, and this might sound like a, a ridiculous notion, but I'm the one that is living in this body. And when I finally quit dairy, that's when the paranoia stopped. Mm-hmm. So, so I, 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 I'm, I'm testing this in real time. Plus, I'm taking the knowledge from Max Lugavere's Genius Foods. And I am telling you that if we actually augmented the food in military bases today to be healthy, non-inflammatory foods, the depression rates and the suicide rates would absolutely go down, period. Mm-hmm. 
What about the veterans who don't live on a military base, who live, you know, just any anywhere in America? Um, Fair enough. Is there or around the world? And around the world. Uh, well, yeah. Um, is there something the VA could do um, differently, for example? Yes, I, th- I think one of the things that we that we saw work in certain Air Force bases years ago was when they implemented transcendental meditation to certain bases base wide and made it mandatory. They they saw a significant reduction in suicides in six months. Uh, and then the new commander comes in and says, this is a cult, be away with it. And it was done. And they went right back up to the numbers they were at for suicides right after that occurred. Mm-hmm. So we know there are certain things that work. We're just not doing them because of bureaucracy and protocol and and finances. And so until we address these things, the food in military bases, the food at military homes around the world, until we recognize that this is very real and has a major effect on our, our military mental health, things aren't aren't going to change. They aren't going to switch into a place where we see a reduction in suicides in the military until we do things like this that we know already work. Mm-hmm. Reduction of access to lethal means is one. Fixing the food on military bases and military homes and, and using transcendental meditation or a formidable, formidable proven form of meditation that is actually viable and that statistically we know works. Mm-hmm. If we did these things military base wide, you'd see a reduction in suicides. Why won't we do these things? We need to ask our military leaders, our defense secretary, why are we not doing these things? Mm-hmm. What is the what is the caveat? What is stopping us from engaging in these changes to start a global change in military and veteran suicide? Mm-hmm. That's the question I have for my leaders. That's okay. what I want to know. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Let's move on to the recovery community healthcare providers. What um, what what should people know? What 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 could healthcare providers do to help prevent suicide? The biggest thing I say to people who are working in, a, in, a, in a, as healthcare providers, as clinicians, as people who work in psychiatric hospitals, as people who work in in, in any clinical level, um, is treat people like me like people first and patients second. I'm not a consumer. I'm not some shopper at Target. My name is Kevin Hines. I'm not a number on a page. I am not uh, I am not a statistic. I'm a human being. If I come into your hospital, I need you to put aside your petty squabbles with my issues and my mental health that are affecting you. And I need you to treat me like the human being I deserve to be treated, not as a person with a mental illness who is crazy. And that's the biggest problem I see in, in healthcare professionals, I've been in seven psychiatric hospital stays between 2000 and 2011. Now, there were, there were for the majority of high, hospital stays I had, there were healthcare professionals that were mostly amazing, phenomenal, beautiful human beings that absolutely helped benefit my brain, mind, behavioral health, and change my life 110%. But there was that, there were those two to three percent of employees that were deadened to their job and so tired of working there, but they had to get a paycheck and they treated me like the scum on the earth. They treated me like the dirt that they walked on. And I'm not, I'm not lambasting mental health professionals in general. I'm saying the majority were phenomenal and taught me great things and helped me find a better well-being. But the certain number of individuals, the small number of individuals who were angry at their job or upset with it or, or over it, if you will, and that was visible, like in any profession, in any profession, you have the people that don't want to be there. You know this, right? So when, when it comes to a mental health facility or healthcare professionals, it's really obvious which ones are not in it for the, for the, for the good reasons. They treat you poorly and they talk to you poorly and they 
treat you like you're a second-class citizen. And, and that is devastating for a person who's going through severe mental struggles. If you're a healthcare professional and you are, you know, not happy at your job, it's time to go do something else because mm-hmm. you're affecting people like me in a terrible way. And all we're trying to do is survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on that end, I want to say thank you to the healthcare professionals that helped save and change my life over and over again, because you helped keep me here. And part of the reason I'm sitting here talking to you is because of a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But to the folks that are going through it and aren't really having a great time with their job anymore and aren't happy anymore, you really need to go find something else to do because you're affecting people like me in a bad way and it's leading to damaging situations that are uh, that are changing me as a person. Mm-hmm. And, and we just – we need to be aware of that balance and, uh, and, and we need to be thankful to our healthcare professionals that are doing it right, that are, that are, that are actually in it to win it to help you be the best you you can be. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that if we can t- treat people as the – person first, the human being, and the patient second, mm-hmm. it would go a long way. Okay. Okay. Um, let's move on to the, the media. Um, so, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of media won't or don't cover a suicide afterwards unless it's, you know, a fav- famous person like Bourdain or Kate Spade. Um, and there's reason for that. Um, but what could media do to be proactive? What type of national media, local media, what can they do to help, to help prevent suicides, to help this epidemic? One of the biggest things they can do, and I think CNN does this really well, is educate the populace when something like this happens, a high-profile suicide. Educate the masses first on how suicides affect families, how they affect lives, and how they change the face of familial history. And then you can tell the story of of what happened and who passed away, but only in a way that's non-sensationalistic, that is educational, and that is uh, not focused on entertainment. Mm -hmm. If we focus on entertainment, we lose scope of of what's really important, saving other lives. And I think the media can augment the way they cover suicide and try to be more like groups like CNN because uh, when you put out information about a uh, individual that's taking their life and you put out the information about how they died and that's the first thing you post or first thing you publish, that is horrific and dangerous. That is so dangerous to post exactly how the person died. Basically, you're saying to someone, this is how you could do it too. Instead of that approach, have a, have a special or a, or a, or even like or even a uh, a town hall on, on what is suicide, how it devastates, who are the survivors, what are they trying to do to change this this issue, and and who are the people who are going through that pain who are succeeding in life. We need to steer away from the negative, damaging side effects of a, a public profiled suicide and steer toward education on how to keep the rest of us here. Mm-hmm. And, and the media needs to be better about doing that. The media is so uber-focused on what happened, who it was, and why they're important and why they died, that they lose sight of actually having an impact that could change a life for the better forever. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think if we can help our – one thing we can help our media by doing is, is, is to utilize safe messaging in the media, but not in a way that is censorship to people who are in pain, in a way that is educational um, – and helps people understand what they can do today to keep their members who are still here remaining, mm-hmm. staying, mm-hmm. be here tomorrow and every day after that, you know? Right, right. Okay, okay. 
Um, what about elected officials, the the government? What what can what can they do? You know, uh, our our American mental health system is broken. It's not cracked; it's broken. And we live in a society where we can't get insurance for mental health care because it's a pre-existing condition. Hell, we can barely get physical insurance anymore. Uh, but 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 we cannot get insurance for a mental health diagnosis that is pre pre-existing. Our government must fully fund brain, mind, behavioral health research and programs, actionable programs with, with solution-based steps to change someone's life who's mentally struggling. We need to fully fund those programs because if we do not, um, there will be more people in jail for mental health, which costs cities more money. There will be more people in psych wards, which costs cities more money. There will be more people dying of suicide, which costs the community more money. All of the things that would be fixed if the mental health system was, was, was intact, if the mental health system was fully funded uh, at every level, um, we would have so much less recidivism in the psych wards, jail cells, prisons. Um, uh, uh, we'd have so many less uh, bodies to bury for, for deaths by suicide. We would have a, a significant financial impact would be made on, on if we kept our mental health intact. Over $55 billion was lost in, in, in the U.S. last year to mental health costs in the workplace. $55 billion. Because our, our corporations are not taking care of their employees' mental health from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Now, there are groups doing it right. Best Buy is doing it right. Apple's doing it right. Uh, you know, people like people in, in a search, uh, Capital One's doing it right. They're all working tirelessly to have benefit packages that benefit your mental health. And when you're struggling, they're willing to give you the time you need to recuperate. Um, but those are three anomalies in a system that should be covered countrywide in every corporation in the world. If we want our, our employee populace to be mentally well, we have to put the steps in place in our workplace in benefit packages to make sure that they have every opportunity to build that mental stability, that mental resilience, that brain power, and, and, and not suffer from brain pain. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, I think our government, if our government, back to the question at hand, fully funds brain, mind, behavioral health, we would see a massive reduction in the American budget uh, as it pertains to uh, people who suffer from certain situations, including involving mental health. Right. If we actually got our government to get behind and stop cutting every single time they cut first mental health, Every single time, they look at all these things like you know potholes and and, um, and 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 we spend so much money in, in our city and state governments on things that are truly irrelevant, things that don't benefit most people. But if we spent the money on mental, mind, brain, behavioral health and suicide prevention, to be to be frank, um, we would see a reduction in in, in costs in every single state in the country. That money could be put into a pool to help mental health programs. Okay. Okay. Um, I know your, your time is limited, so I, I was hoping we could just end. If you could, um, what message do you have to someone who might be struggling right now? All right. Looking right at you, my friend, okay? If you're watching this right now and you're going through hell mentally and you're considering suicide, I need you to do me a favor. Stop. Breathe. 
In through the nose, four seconds. Release through pursed lips like a whistle, but no sound for eight seconds. Four, eight. We'll do it together. Now that's not going to do you any good doing it once. But doing that 30 times, three times a day lowers your blood pressure, heart rate, lowers an adrenaline rush, can lower a panic or anxiety attack, and can lower your stress. I do it every day I wake up. I do it every day in the afternoon. I do it every day at night before I go to bed. I do it before every presentation at least 10 times. I do it when I get anxious or stressed or paranoid. I do it because 4-8, as long as you don't have low blood pressure already, because you don't want to do it if you have low blood pressure, there's that uh, 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 warning there. Uh, but, but if you don't have low blood pressure, it's a perfect tool to balance your brain, to balance your mind, to come to a calm. Now, now, you're, you're, now you're in a calm. You've done, you, you, you've done the 4-8 several times. I want you to consider this. Suicide is never the solution to our problems. It is the problem. And dying by our hands doesn't, uh, doesn't make the pain end. It just transfers the pain to every single person left behind. Now, I attempted to take my life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in the year 2000 because of bipolar disorder and depression and, and, and hallucinations, auditory and visual. I wish I never did. I wish I never jumped off that bridge. I'm lucky that I got to survive. I'm, I'm blessed in that regard. But you are here for a reason, and it's not to die by your hands. You have plenty of time to die. We're all going to die. Human beings, that's our plight. We live a life and we pass on when our body is extinguished. But let your life end naturally. Naturally. If you take your life now, you'll never have an opportunity for things to change. But if you hold in that suicidal crisis and you ask for help until you find help, don't just ask for help from one person because they might not be able to help you. Ask for help until you find someone willing to sit with you, to be with you, to recognize your pain, and to keep you safe and here. And when you find that individual or the, that, that group that's willing to help you stay here, hold on to them dearly. Let them know how much you care about them. Because suicide, I promise you, only leads to more pain indefinitely forever. And it doesn't need to. Your life is valuable. Your life is worthy. You are important and you matter to me. And if nobody else says it today, I love you and I want you to stay. Now, if you're in crisis right now, I want you to text CNQR to 741741. Did you hear me? I said text CNQR to 741741. That is our foundation, the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation's Conquer Keyword. CNQR stands for conquer. Conquer your pain. We use that hashtag when we talk about it. Conquer pain. Uh, courage to talk about your mental health. Normalize the conversation. Ask the questions to somebody in mental pain. Are you suicidal and do you have a plan which are statistically proven to have people tell the truth and give permission to talk about their pain? And then R is for recovery because I am living proof and you can be too. Conquer your pain, conquer your struggles, conquer your worries. And if you're in crisis, text the NQR to 741741 or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And for your international audience, suicide.org can help you find hope today. We are with you. You are not alone. And I promise one last time, suicide is not the answer. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Carlina. <laughs> yes. All right. You take care. All right. Bye now. Bye. Bye.